Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Today I'm speaking with Brandon Spangler. Brandon is a former U.S. Marine Corps sergeant who served from 1998 to 2003 and now works as a counselor for veterans, first responders, and their families through his private practice, Warrior's Mindset. Before that, he spent six years working at the VA as a marriage and family therapist and as a counselor dealing with combat trauma, military sexual trauma, and childhood trauma. He has an associate's degree, a bachelor's in social work, and a master's in clinical social work from Walla Walla University. You can find him via his website, which I'll put a link to in the description, on Instagram at Warriors Mindset LLC, or you can email him, and I'll also put his email address in the description. During our conversation, we discuss the Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, quiz, using drugs to cope, the moment you know, letting your heart release, NSDR and Yoga Nidra, connecting your mind and body, the location of neurons and where you feel things, not identifying with your past, emotional regulation, your bucket, the Jenga analogy, therapists as people, journaling, being social, mental health in law enforcement and first responders, moral injury, trauma and storytelling, not watching the news, internalizing messages not directed at us, anger addiction, pushing for self-discovery, and other topics. This was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Brandon's got an incredible story of really transformation, almost living three separate lives. And I think it's an important point for all of us that you can do that, that you can completely change who you are in certain ways. And you don't have to be locked into some identity that you had at some point in your life. Sort of tangentially to that, I realize that I say former Marine Corps sergeant in the intro here. That's what it said on the bio he gave me, but I feel like I'm going to get corrected from Marines out there that it's once a Marine, always a Marine. I'm not actually sure how I'm supposed to say that. And I say that as a veteran. Uh, So please uh, enlighten me if there's a better way to say that that's more appropriate. Uh, Someone let me know about it. Finally, remember that Rare Sense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Now, without further ado, here's Brandon Spangler. All right, Spangler, what's up, dude? What's going on, man? How, how are you? Doing good, man. Doing good. We, we, so we missed you at the workout this morning. Yeah, my, uh, my <laughs> wife just messaged me. She was like, hey, apparently Chris was here, but I didn't know who it was until he was gone. I'm like, hey, it's hard to miss Chris, man. <laughs> well, it's because I cut all my hair off. I'm trying to look more like you. That's- <laughs> you get there. You got you to get a little bit more. Uh, you got to front load the, back, yeah, the hair coming off the top first, and then it gets better. Yeah, yeah. So what's what? What do you? You have some ink. You got some new ink that's that is yeah. preventing you from exercising right now for a little bit. Yeah, and I didn't know that was a thing. So apparently, I can't work out and I can't do the sauna either, which I'm like super. Oh, pumped. dude. I know. He's like that's nothing awful. For five days. So I was like, eh, maybe three days. So what do you get? What's the ink? Um. So it's a it's a Greek Greek mythology stuff. So you know, a lot of the Greek characters are a lot of like archetypal stuff, right? So. Yeah, so just a bunch of 
Oh, all right. We're going to get show and tell here. Nice. Yeah. So anyways, so I think there's like Athena. Okay. Go, yeah, go ahead. Which, which characters are we talking about here? Yeah. So we got Athena on there. <laughs> Goddess of like wilderness war. Um, the Typhon, which is the original monster of the gods, like the father of all monsters. And then Poseidon, which I like them. Uh, and I think we're going to have Persephone. So <clears throat> yeah, a little bit of mix, a little bit of males, a little bit of females trying to gain some kind of balance. Why, why Greek gods? What's the draw there? Well, I think it's really more the, um, uh, it's the archetype stuff, right? Okay. It's yeah. really how they're all based on. And there, there's definitely a lot of different, um, you know, every one of the archetypes isn't like just one specific, right? So it's like this, like uh, very complicated characters in a lot of ways. So it's, for me, it's like a way to say a bunch of things. Yes. within a a solid period. So, yeah, that's something I'm not a religious person at all, but that's something I sort of always admired about, um, about those classic, uh, polytheistic cultures was their gods were imperfect. They had human, like it was like the notion of deities for them had nothing really to do with perfection at all. It was almost just power and ability. Right. But all the other stuff, all the, flaws, desire, you name it, right? They all had those quote unquote human qualities, which is really interesting, right? Yep. And then I, and I think at the end, like to add on to that is like potential, right? Like all those had like different ah, yes. potentials within them as well. So yeah, uh, yeah. good, the bad, you know, everything in between. So yeah. Okay. Well, before we go too deep into the rabbit hole of <laughs> <laughs> mythology and theology, Let's give a quick background on you, uh, a little bit on your military background to the extent you're comfortable talking about that, and then what you do now, which is all about veteran mental health, which is obviously what I'm interested in to a large extent and why I want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, so I was in the Marine Corps from 98 to 03. Um, I was a sergeant. Uh, I was stationed in Okinawa and Camp Pendleton as well. Um, did some forward deployment stuff when I was in Okinawa. Um, see, I was just talking about this the other day. I was a corporal when 9-11 hit so and they got promoted shortly after there and then we then we boogied out from there yeah that was that was interesting my birthday is on september 10th right so i was on leave man hanging out (laughs) chatting flip on the station and uh yeah looking for some espn and that was not what i found so yeah jeez yeah so uh 9803 got out and then uh i did a couple years as a military contractor with a company called Bulletproof Securities out of Phoenix. Pretty good little company. Uh, And then after that, uh, well, I guess I should mention when I was in, lost some buddies and lost some buddies to suicide afterwards. Really fell off the the social boat for about 10 years. Ended up going through treatment myself, inpatient treatment myself. That would have been 2013. Ran into just an amazing uh, counselor, um, just a super good dude. Um, had no concept of mental health, like none, really. And I was like, yeah, hey, welcome, man, to like- the, welcome to the club on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hey, man, like, what do you do? Uh, you know, because every time I left, I was like, feeling better, man. So, you know, before I got out of inpatient, I was like, hey, man, what do you do? I'd like to do that because I was an aircraft mechanic. I was a uh, A&P mechanic for years and I just hated my job. Right. And, uh, he's like, Oh, I'm a social worker. I'm like, I don't know what that is. And so anyways, went back into the whole deal. Um, got my associates, my bachelor's in social work, my master's in clinical social work. Um, and during that time working with 
the veteran population at combat centers, uh, veter- veteran combat centers. So I grew up clinically in that kind of arena, working in anything trauma based and uh, and combat veter- combat vet centers also work with uh, military sexual trauma. So I've worked with the combat trauma and the sexual assault as well. So yeah, I worked in and around the VA for about six and a half years. That was my military service. I have a deferred retirement, so I'm out of that now. Spent the last year and a half working two jobs, building my private practice. And now as of January of 23, um, went full-time in my private practice, um, really focusing on veterans and uh, first responders. I'm actually starting to get way deeper into the first responders law enforcement community. I'm setting up some programs for potentially Glacier National Park. Uh, I'm already in with the Flathead County Sheriff's Office, um, and then I'm working with Polson to get them a mental health grant. So kind of spread my wings a little bit, right? So same kind of culture. I mean, you see the same things in law enforcement as you do in the military. So lands us here, man. Okay, so a bunch of stuff there. First of all, I didn't realize you were in Okinawa. When were you there? Uh, I would have been Okinawa in 99. Okay. I, I think I just missed you, man. I was there kind of right after that. So the, like early part of my career as well. But we like, we might have, we may have crossed paths in Okinawa a long time ago, obviously. Interesting. Uh, that's interesting. What, where were you on? Um... Uh, Fatema. Fatema. Okay. Okay. Different spot then. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I guess getting out of the military then and getting with this social worker, right? Wh- what was it about that <clears throat> that was so interesting to you? Right. Like what what was going on with you that made that such a draw? Yeah. So uh, real small background, like grew up in a really, really difficult family. A lot of I mean, name the gamut of abuse. Are are you familiar with like um, uh, the ACEs score, the adverse childhood experiences scale? No, no. Go over. Oh, man. That's a that's a really good one to look up. Basically, it's like um, there's, I think it's like 10 questions of like, hey, like, did you have a parent who uh, physically abused you? Oh, yeah, like, actually, you know what? I do know what this is. I just didn't know what it was called. But yeah, okay, got it. Yep. So I, I, I score like an eight out of 10, right? Overachievers. So going into all that. Congratulations. <laughs> I, I don't want to brag, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to brag, but I get a, I get like 80% on this, like abused as a child score thing. <laughs> <laughs> So front loading that with going in the military, right? You know, the Marine Corps, which is like, you know, typecast every Marine, right? Going into that as well. So basically through that entire span, like there's just all this really difficult things that are going on. Um, and nobody's talking about thoughts, feelings, what's going on with you. Like there's no like introspection of what was going on with me at all. And I think when I when I went into treatment and started having that some conversations with that social worker, um, he was asking me some interesting questions. <clears throat> he was asking me things about myself. How do you feel about that? Do you think that was kind of right? Do you think that was wrong? Do you want to do something about it? And, and in treatment, that was the first time I realized like you could develop skill sets to deal with that. Um, cause as, as an aside, um, I got into, uh, uh, drugs really, really bad. That was my coping mechanism for about 10 years after I got in the Marine Corps. That was my version of dealing with it, right? Um, can, pretty can, do you mind d- diving into that a little bit? Just, to, I mean, to the extent you're comfortable, I'm just curious about why you went down that road. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in here, like why you went down that road, what you were doing specifically, what you were trying to deal with, um, because all of it, 
what I find so interesting about you is you, you seem to be someone who got very proactive mm-hmm. about your own mental health in a very mature way. Like everything you're talking about is sort of beyond the scope, I think, of where a lot of us go. It's a really forward thinking mentality and people are doing it more and more now. But certainly from the time frame you're talking about to kind of go through that, to be like coping with drugs and alcohol and whatever it may be. Um, and then sort of getting in where you're, where you're seeing somebody from a therapy standpoint and really latching onto that. Because there's a lot of people that resist it. There's a lot of people that are like, I'm just going to keep on drinking, right? Like that's kind of their attitude. So, yeah, I mean, just keep going. I mean, it's just fascinating how you did that. Yeah, no, for sure. So um, I think, you know, when you have all those experiences and you're having like really difficult, like strong emotional experiences, losing friends, um, lots of abuse, stuff like that, like, you know, the human body, uh, the human experience, we want to try to do something to alleviate that. And for me, like when I started, cause uh, I broke my back and my neck in the Marine Corps. Um, and so, you know, at that time the military was like, you want all the drugs? And I was like, yes, I do. So, uh, for me, when I started taking like opioids and like amphetamines, uh, so I did a lot of, a lot of meth, a lot of heroin. Um, a lot of people don't actually know that about me, but yeah, no, I was, wow. I was in the deep, deep. So but really what that did for me is it gave me a, an internal sense of relief of like, oh, for the next four hours, six hours, I don't have to deal with like this, yep. this massive internal buildup of, of all the guilt, anger, shame. Um, I was a rage monster for years and years. I mean, I would feed off it for, I'd find something to get me going for like two, three days, man. I mean, I would just like, I would just grab a hold of that thing and I'd just chew it until it was absolute dust, right? And so for me, like that was, that was my escape. That was my, my opportunity when I was kind of, you know, strongly dissociated with those things for me to, um, to check out. And and that was really, that was really what it was about for me. And I, and I didn't know that at the time, right? I just like, oh, I feel good. This is great. I didn't realize like that's, that was the balance that was happening internally. And then, so when I got to, before I went into treatment, oh, this is worth saying, I think. So I was dating this girl, you know, we, uh, I was working at the airport. She worked in the nuclear field. You know, we were making great money. We had a bunch, we had a couple cars. We had a couple houses we were renting out. We were doing really, really well, but I was using drugs at that time at like an absolute maniac. And I remember thinking like, I have all the things in the stuff, right? I have the house, we got the dog, uh, we're, we're, we're renting out apartment houses but I'm still, my, my drug use is still continuing to ramp and ramp and ramp. And man, God bless this man. Her father basically came to the house one time after they, after they realized like, Oh, you're using like drug drugs. Um, he came to the house. He's like, Hey man, you, you gotta go. And and he was super good dude. Said it with love, said it with affection. He's like, Hey man, I'll help you out. I will do whatever you need me to do to get you into treatment center, but you can't do this to my daughter and you got to go. And I was like, Oh, that's what a man looks like. Right? Like you can, you can be firm and fair, but compassionate. And, and for me, I was like, Oh, and I had a ton of respect for him. He was, a he's and continues to be an amazing man. So for me, I was like, all right. And he did, he ended up calling like, um, I was in Oregon at the time. So, uh, Eastern Oregon, he called Boise and then he called Walla 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 called me back sooner and he's like, Hey, there you go. Like pack your shit in the back of your truck and give her good, man. Give her hell. And so, yeah, <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. 
I was homeless for about three months um, because they didn't have a bed that was open. So I was living in the back of my truck, like way in the mountains. Cause I'm a, I'm a country kid by heart. So it didn't terribly bother me, but I was like in the mountains, mountains. I'd come back into town every couple of days and charge my phone and be like, Hey, you guys got a seat yet? Nope. All right. Okay. Head back out, man. Um, did that for about two and a half months. And then the last two weeks I got into a homeless shelter because <clears throat> I wasn't showering I, the whole deal. Right. Like it was pretty, pretty rough. So I went into a place called the Christian Aid Center in Walla Walla, which I ended up doing an internship there later on as like a like a thank you to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so then end up. So when I got to that point in my life, I and I was just talking to somebody the other day about this. I was really at a crossroads, man. You know, again, I've had a bunch of buddies die. A bunch of them were getting killed or uh, dying by suicide. My best friend died, Brian Lenning, and uh, I was really at the like, hey man, like this is either this is either a shit or get off the pot for me. I'm either gonna go the, uh, go the final route and put one in myself and, you know, bite the bullet literally, or, or I'm going to, I'm going to go all in. Um, and I was like, well, I, I'm going to decide to go all in, but if I go all in, like I'm going to milk this thing until it's, till it's done. And if I can, if I can get something out of it, I'll get it, but I'm going to give it like an absolute solid shot and I'm going to run it through. And, and I think that's why when, when I was talking to, um, talking to my counselor, and they were saying like, hey, like this, you can try this. And this first place, the first time I ever tried meditation, they're like, oh, you can sit down and meditate. And I was like, well, that sounds really dumb, but I'm going to give that a shot too, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. but I was, I was open, man. I was so, I was so internally distraught that I was like, I've got to do something, right? And I'm, if I'm going to do this thing, like I'm going to, I'm going to do it hundred percent and we're going to. Run it until the wheels fall off, and if it falls off, then at least I know I tried. But can I can I ask you in that moment when you were sort of like like you said, shit or get off the pot here? Was it you were distraught still over the things you had been trying to use drugs, alcohol, whatever to cope with, or were you distraught over what had you what you had succumbed to in terms of using those things, or was it a combination of both of those things? I think it was a combination of both. So like every, every good person who's wrapped up in addiction, I tried, you know, dozens of times to stop because I was like, I don't really necessarily want to do this. Right. But then it was also like all of the events that had happened to me uh, over the years or happened with or to me over the years. And I just didn't know what to do with them. Right. And there's just like, dude, I have all these experiences and all that. Like it was just such an internal heavy weight. So it was that. And then using the drugs to cope with that, it was just like, you're like, where's my life going? I'm 30, early 30s, right? And like, you know, drug addiction, like massive issues with like chronic pain from my neck and my lower back, you know, not being success, successful in any measurable way of my life. And so it was really like this amalgamation of all these experiences, you know, the drug use and all the other trauma in the background. <clears throat> and so what got, I mean, what was the process then, right? Like, how did, how did you shake those things it's so interesting to me because <laughs> like I know you as hard charging athlete in our gym. That's how we met, right? At Big Mountain CrossFit. And, you know, one of the best athletes in the gym. Like one of the nicest people I know, always a smile on your face, laughing, and somebody who helps other people, right? That's how and and very clean too, right? Like doesn't drink and doesn't super and that's how I know you. That's how I've I met you. And you have seemingly at least two other complete lives behind you. One is as a military, as a Marine, and then one is kind of like downward spiral, kind of, right? 
And for me, there's a couple things there. One is I think it's super inspiring because I think there's a lot of people that feel like they're tied to whatever, especially military people, veterans feel like they're tied to their military career. They can't go do something else, right? So like really challenging, they lose their purpose, that kind of thing. And that's something I talk about a lot. You're clearly a case where that's not true. You can go do something else Two, You can pull yourself out of the depths, right? Like you can, you can descend into, let's stick with Greek mythology here into the pit of Hades, right? Like the bottom the river sticks or whatever, the, the Stygian nightmare, as it were, and and you can get out of that and you can do it seemingly. I don't know. You can kind of talk about like how that all went for you, but potentially through a lot of your own power, right? Not necessarily through. I mean, it's great. Other people help you along the way, certainly. But like you have you have the ability to do that, which I think is so important for people to hear, too. So so talk about how that went for you, right? Like how, how you finally got clean, so to speak, and then how all this mental training came into play for you. And, and what really moved the needle too? That's what I'm curious about too. Like, was it, did you have a, started meditating and like, holy shit, I can't believe what this is doing for me. Was it something else, you know? Yeah. So, so there was like this, this Eureka aha moment that I had, um, um, in, when I was in treatment and then I had to actually do the work afterwards, but I had the moment, right? So, you know, I, I, I'm sure you've never been an inpatient, but for the people who've been an inpatient, like, you know, a couple times a week, at least in Walla Walla, what they would do is they would have like these group presentations and educations, right? Of like, you know, like family dynamics and trauma and drug use and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's this counselor there. She was this really just super old, nice lady. And she's going through and she's talking about family dynamics, <clears throat> family role systems and all this stuff. And like, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, name, name your trauma, like the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, she's just checking all the boxes for me. Right. And I'm just like, check, check, check. And I remember about three quarters of the way through it, I raised my hand and she says, yeah, I said, all right, I get all this. And I go, I'm, I'm checking the boxes and that's great. I go, but at what point is this like, at what point am I responsible for taking care of this? And she goes, the minute you know, mm. and that hit me like a fucking ton of bricks, dude. Boom. And I was like, oh, right. Because now I was getting this knowledge of like, hey, it's not normal for you to get beat by a hose and a, all, all the stuff, right? I had no context for that. So, and, and all these different versions of, of what was these traumatic things. And, and she was talking about like, you know, like, hey, there's these skills you can learn, whether it's like, breath work, meditation, uh, working out. Like there's all these things you can learn. I had no idea that there's like this giant tool bag that you can start dipping your fingers into and be like, Oh, I can use that for that. Or I can use that for that. And that was that Eureka moment for me. Like, Oh, you can do something about this. Like I was, I had a very, you know, fatalistic nihilistic view of like, Oh, well I'm, you know, this is my life. It's super crazy. And I'm going to run it into the ground until it explodes. And then good game. Right. I realized like, Oh, I can actually do something with that. So for me, that was that moment of, oh, okay, now I can now I can actually try to do some of these things. And that what that really did, Chris, was it gave me hope. And that mm -hmm. was the for me, like, oh, I can do something about this and I can actually develop some skill sets in some way. And so for me, I was like, oh shit, all right. Well, let's 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 see what these are. And yeah, and Walla Walla was really good about, you know, they had the regular 
individual therapy, group therapy, education, but they had a, a, a program called the CAM program, uh, Complementary and Alternative Medicines. And that was like Tai Chi and yoga and breath work and um, uh, guided meditations. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this, this is an interesting one. So very first time I ever meditated, they had this little dark room, really nice recliners that sit all the way back, right? I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I just want to go in here and sleep because I'm tired. I put these headphones on uh, and I'm like, all right, let's do this thing, man. I have no idea what to expect. I don't know if they're going to yell at me or I have no idea, right? This really nice lady voice comes on and she's going on for like five or 10 minutes. And I actually have never told anybody this. So I remember having like a lightness that kind of came over me as I'm going through this guided meditation and I'm seeing this in my mind's eye. And she uh, she talked about like, okay, now feel your heart, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. And she's like, let your heart just release a little bit. And I had this, and I still have it to this day. I have this, like this mental image of having like my heart, like wrapped in bob wire. Right. And like the bob wire just like relented a little bit. And I was like, I remember just taking like this big gasping breath of air and being like, Whoa. And I was like, that was crazy. And you know, I finished up the meditation for a couple more minutes walking back to the other side of campus and my brain at that point, that was the first time my brain and body were like it complete, like homeostasis and relaxing. And I was like, what is this? I was a little bit freaked out, man. I was like, okay, I, I feel like that's where we're supposed to be, but this is strange. Um, so that's when I knew like, there's something here. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something because I know my internals and that that wasn't anywhere near my normal baseline. That's awesome. I think that's something that um, <clears throat> do you ever do um, yoga nidra or NSDR like uh, Andrew Huberman's um, non-sleep deep rest. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those two practices. I do. I do know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know what this is. Yoga nidra is it's not yoga in the traditional way you would think of it, where you're moving in downward dog and that type of stuff. You're basically sort of like scanning your body and, and connecting your mind with your body and you're going through your various body parts. So you might start with your head and it's very specific. It goes from like forehead behind your eyes. And you're just kind of like connecting that idea, like connecting your mind with that part of your body and, and trying to relax it as well. So it's like go to your tongue and like the back of your tongue and relax it in your throat and it's a really effective practice for nervous system downregulation. And Andrew Huberman's got a thing called non-sleep deep rest, NSDR, which is essentially the same thing. And it can be 10 minutes, as short as 10 minutes. It's really effective. I really like it. It's, it's something I kind of figured out how to do on my own, actually. It's funny. I came across this practice recently, I would say within the last year, and I was like, huh, I, I actually came up with that on my own, like as a kid, almost when I used to have trouble sleeping, I was like, well, I'm just like too amped up. So I'm going to go scan my body and try to relax various muscle groups, like get them to relax to the point where they feel like they're sinking into the bed. And I would just, after 10 minutes of that, I would fall asleep. And it's funny. It took me a while of doing NSCR to be like, Hey, I, I figured out how to do this on my own, like 30 years ago. But it's the same kind of thing you're talking about, which is really, I think our minds and our bodies, even though obviously they're still working together, so to speak, they become disconnected in certain ways where they're not, 
you're not really tapping into that ability of like, you know, you can consciously direct your attention to various parts of your body and have a physiological impact on them. And that's kind of what you're talking about. And I love that idea. I'm going to, I'm going to try this now, this like relax your heart, release some of that around your heart. And we talk about, I just want to pause on this concept for a second. We talk about our heart. People use that as a metaphor for feelings, right? Like our emotional center, whatever you want to call it, of our heart, which is kind of weird. If you're a really logical person like me, you kind of go, that's bullshit, right? (laughs) Now, granted, like the ancient Egyptians basically thought that was the center of the being. They thought the brain was just mush. They like hacked it out out when people died, right? They just pulled it out through their nose. And, but the heart was really important. They would embalm that and wrap it, mummify your heart. But we know now that there's neurons in your heart, right? Like there are neurons in your stomach. So these things that we think of as being, I don't know what you want to call it, like thinking parts of what make us conscious neurons, right? Like that, that are are in our brains. There are in other parts of your body too. And realizing that can kind of make you think maybe it isn't all just about my brain when it comes to what makes me me and thinking about where emotions get stored, which I'm a big proponent of and a big believer in that's really important. So that's cool, man, that you had that kind of epiphany with that practice. Yeah, it, it really, it really was weird, man. Like I had, you know, it's one of those things like you don't really know what you don't know. And then when you have like this experience, it's just such a one-off from what your, from what your uh, regular life is like, those can be, those can be profound and impactful, right? So much so that I'm talking about it, you know, 10 years later that it was one of my very first, like very strong internal experiences. But yeah, I, I think those experiences are good to have. I was going to do like an add on to when you're talking about like the Egyptians, I think, you know, when you talk about like Socrates and Plato is like those guys, um, they talked about the gut being the second brain. Yeah. Right. right. Yep. So, you know, and you know, until recently everybody's like, Oh, that's, that's just horse rubbish. Right. You know, the medical community in general is like, Oh, that's bullshit. Like, well, it turns out, right. <laughs> we have all those neurons there. We have mirror neurons that help us mirror other people as well. Right. Like, yep. yeah, there's, there's so much more going on that, that I don't think the 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 regular I would say the the medical profession in general isn't really privy on right so for sure and I think when you're talking about trying to expand your mental health and what that looks like to like navigate the world better I think the movement that we're having over the last 10 15 maybe 20 years has been extraordinarily helpful because there's so many like individual people, like people like yourself and other people who are like, Hey, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to try some of these things. Um, and we're going to see what happens, right? We're going to, we're going to see what happens when I do this and what happens. And, and yeah, it's a lot of N of one, right? A lot of anecdotal stuff, but the collective consciousness that's happening around that is pretty interesting. And, and it's, it's kind of developing um, I would say strongly outside like the traditional medical community, even though I think the medical community is like, oh, there may be some things to this now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally. Right, right. right. You know, those Chinese that came up with that uh, acupuncture stuff like 3,000 years ago, people are still doing like, yeah, there might be something to that. Oh, you think? Right, right. And then we'll wrap it up and we'll call it like battlefield acupuncture, right? Right. Well, yeah, we'll change the name. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. it's ours. so we can patent it and make money off right. of it. <laughs> Hey, did you guys see this thing we came up with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. cool. Thanks, Pfizer. 
brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, that I, I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit on on that. But yeah, I just think that that I talk a lo- I talk a lot about kind of releasing emotional energy, right? Like the need to cry, the need to laugh, the need to be angry to some extent. In, in a healthy way, like not where you're throwing plates on the wall or, or being violent with somebody, but figuring out why you feel that way and figuring it, that's the important thing. It's like digging into that. Like, why are you so angry? Right. Really understand that. But it's also, it's not just that it is feeling yourself like in a, not in a creepy way, but like in it, <laughs> it, it, meaning like something like meditation, scanning your body and be like, if you're angry or you're sad, where do you feel that in your body? It, it's not just like, that's an important component of it. It's not just, I feel sad. Okay, got it. Where? Like, where do you feel that? Because these, as much as this is something I never thought was real, that emotional energy gets stored places. And, and it's, I always tell people that sort of, are sort of like, what? Really? Like you can, I'm like, okay, well, if you don't think energy can be stored in you, what do you think a memory is? Right? We were talking about this the other day. 100%. Okay? Like we all we all understand that memory is a thing. That's an experience you had that was right that's no longer present really the actual experience that somehow got imprinted upon your cells in your brain as far as we know uh, for the most part, but then you can bring it back out, right? So that the energy of that, the information from that experience is stored that in your body, right? So if that can happen, who's to say that a really traumatic experience can't get stored in you in other ways too, especially if we have neurons in other parts of our body, right? Who's to say that it's only in your brain and that it has no impact on you, right? Like I, I firmly believe it can get stored in other places and can cause dysfunction. And so that's why it's so important as we process these things. And I'm sure you deal with this with the, with the veterans you deal with and first responders, like feel it, like, where do you feel that? And then what's your relationship with that feeling? Is it something you hate? Is it something you try to push away? Are you figuring out a way to <clears throat> embrace it? Right. These are all things that I think are really important practices that people need to open their eyes to. Yeah. And, and, and like we were talking about just a minute ago, like there, that's that divergence from the regular medical community, right? Yep. Um, there's a lot of people like oh, the woo woo, but I can tell you, you know, I've sat in front of thousands of people so far in my career. And I'm a, I'm a strictly a trauma-based therapist, right? Like I, I don't wor- work with the worried well, like that's cool. Somebody else can have that. Like I want to go into the deep, right? I'm familiar with it. I'm comfortable with it. And so like one of the interesting things is like when you start talking to, talking to people about um, I'll do different, uh, different like evidence-based stuff. And when we start talking about some of the traumas, <clears throat> it's been interesting, man. So I had like a guy who, who, um, who, uh, watched another human being's neck get broke. And as we were going, yeah, it's not great. Oh. So, uh, yeah, well, it's one of a thousand, right? So when he was going through and we were processing through that stuff, like a couple weeks later, he started developing some really bad, well, he'd had bad neck issues in the past, but it started getting significantly worse. Yeah. Right. right. When you hear people start talking about some other, I don't want to give too many more like stories, but uh, that was just like an acute example. But 
you'll have people start talking about, uh, you know, walking across minefields and then their, their legs will literally start twitching. Yeah. They can't you know right. what I mean? So mm-hmm. you're, I mean, that, that connection is a hundred percent there for me. That's not even like a, it's possible. Like I see it daily, right? Yes, good. I mean, it absolutely is a fact it is stored in the body. You know, and one of the, one of the interesting things, and I know you've kind of poked around with this a little bit too, of like, Hey man, like if we're going through something, we're process something and I'll see a leg twitching or I'll see the arm moving or the shoulders. Like, Hey man, where are you feeling that in your body right now? I'm feeling it right here and right here. Let's stretch that out a little bit. Let's move it a little bit. See if we can get that stuff going a little bit. Right. Um, Do something to kind of exercise quote unquote, some of that trauma out of there and trying to get some of that stuff out of there. Uh, Cause that stuff is super real. I will also say when you're talking about like, uh, kind of sitting with things and where does that kind of sit in the body? Like emotionally, I had this really cool chart that I started using years ago and you can look it up on the Google webs, right? But um, it's a, it's a FLIR chart. So the forward looking infrared um, and they basically took a, took a picture of like, I don't know, there's a bunch of them now, but there's like 16 or 14, like uh, different uh, emotional states. And they took a FLIR camera and hit those people with the FLIR oh, during cool. those emotional states. And it's crazy because like, you know, like anger, or anxiety or, or depression is all blue because it's cold. Um, sometimes I'll use that chart with my vets because and I'll be like, hey, you know, like, what's it look like for you right now? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of mostly men can't identify what's happening internally. Like, I know I'm mad or I know I'm pissed off or I'm sad. But like, what does that look like in their body? They, they've never been taught to make that connection. And if you can't make that connection, it's hard to integrate it, right? If we have this cognitive dissonance, if you can't make that connection, you can't really integrate that experience. So I think when you're talking about sitting with it, like that's the importance I think of just sitting with it of like, Hey, what is this? Where's it coming from? Where's it hitting me? What do I want to do with it? Right. Let's finish out. I want to finish out kind of your story. Which so just kind of go from okay you're you're doing these things you're kind of getting your eyes open to the possibility of mental health meditation whatever else where do you go from or how do you go from that to actually working with other people right like not only that I want to do this for a living and help right. others yeah and man if you didn't know me when I was younger like nobody would have guessed this would be the path for me but. Right. But that's what's so cool about it. Again, it's like, I mean, that's a really important message because people feel like they've got to be locked into some kind of profession or it's like, well, that's what I am. Right. I was a Navy SEAL and that's what I'll always be. And that's the best thing I ever did. Okay. And it's like, great. I mean, like you should be proud of that certainly. And, and you know, all of that, but it doesn't mean that that's going to be the best thing you ever did. It doesn't mean that's how you have to identify yourself for the rest of your life. That's a really important thing for people to understand and get past. So anyway, keep going. Yeah, No, I think you're right though. Like recognize that was a part of your life, like figure out how to integrate that part of your life into it. And then, yeah. And then moving on. I think the people who don't integrate that are the ones that get stuck. Right. All right. So, so uh, yeah, so I go through treatment and I realize like treatment is, you know, six weeks long and you know, it was, it's like a, it's getting a GED in, in mental health is what treatment's like, right? Like it's enough to get you out there, but you know, you're going to have to do some work. And so, you know, I had some GI bill benefits left over. And, and so as I was going through, I got done with treatment and I, I moved into like a veterans home kind of thing that was in Walla Walla. I was like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go back to mechanicing. And so like, this seems like it's kind of cool. Let me, let me at least milk some VA benefits, right? Cause I have my GI bill. 
Um, so I started going to school and it was interesting when I was going to school because I did about, I don't know, two or three years of my own, like my own internal, like hardcore therapy. Um, my, my therapist gave me the best advice I've ever gotten when it comes to that stuff. He's like, man, you got to make sure you take care of your own shit so you can get out of your own way. And that's always stuck with me. And and I, I see therapists now that are compromised internally and it, it really messes with the work. It, it, that's just an aside. But so I'm going through my own therapy. I'm, I'm experiencing my own therapy at the same time as I'm starting to take like these psychology classes, lifespan psychology, all these other like um, classes, you know, to the to the soft social sciences. And I'm experiencing them in my own therapy, but then I'm also learning about them cognitively of like, oh, that's why that things happens that you talked about in therapy. So for me, I was getting like, uh, I was getting some breakthrough moments with my therapy. And then I was also getting like some additional information, some like, uh, I wouldn't say like, it was like a higher level of information of like, yeah, you know, this is what's going on with you. And this is why, right? So for me, being able to go to school at the same time as I was going through therapy, it was a lot, but it was just like all this good information for me was just coming in. Right. And I was just soaking it up. And, you know, this is it was really me like, hey, I, I want to I want to give this thing the best shot I can. And, and uh, I was getting some good results with therapy. Um, I was getting good results from school. Um, and then I, I after I got my associates, uh, Walla Walla University has a really great clinical social work program. I put it in for it. Never in a million years thought I'd get accepted. Nobody in my house went to college. And like two weeks later, they're like, hey, you got accepted. I was like. Oh, cool. I guess I'm I'm going to college, like for real, like said a university. <laughs> and that when I landed my junior senior year for my bachelor, um, it was, you know, it was just straight social work. You know, all the, you know, human dynamics, uh, roles, all that stuff. And at that point, I'd already been doing my own therapy for about two years. And I'd really crossed a lot of things off my list as far as like things that were happening internally. And then for me, it was kind of like those hit the ground running. I started doing a work study at the combat vet center. I was just a, you know, you walk in the door and I was just a greeter. Uh, and then as I was going through my senior year, they allowed me to do an, uh, my practicum there. So kind of like doing some intake stuff as well. And then I ended up doing my internship at the combat vet center as well for my master's degree. And, and what I noticed is being around veterans, there was such a low barrier of entry for me to socially catch up with them and like integrate with them. It was, it was like this feeling of like, Oh, these people get me. Cause, cause when I, after I got out from, especially from contracting, I didn't want anything to do with the military. I didn't want to talk to anybody about the military. Nobody knew I was in the Marine Corps for years. Um, and it was almost like this relighting of this candle of like, Oh yeah, these are some of my people. And I think because I was a, a Marine as well, there was this barrier for entry for them to be able to actually talk with me as well was lower. And I realized that, man, like, I love what I'm doing here. This is really, really cool. And I was, you know, I was like slowly just doing a little bit more therapy style work as I was getting closer to my master's degree. And what I was noticing for myself is that I could go into a go into a classroom and they could talk about like, hey, this is what an individual counseling session might look like, and this is how you connect. And I could take that immediately and go right into a session with it, and I could flow with it. 
And for me, that's when I kind of realized like, oh, like this is what I should be doing. Like this, the information that I can get, I can take the the clinical theoretical information and I can integrate it into a very palatable thing, palatable way for other veterans. Right. You know, and you can just use some really common language and, and it was, it was easy for me to take that information and then like relay it to get people moving forward in, in a way that was palatable for them. Yep. And if you have a couple successes like that, where, you know, you work with somebody for a couple months and they come back like, Hey man, I I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Like for me, that was that light bulb of like, okay, so I've spent years like in my own therapy and my own work. And, and, and I'm basically taking these resources that are being offered me and I'm using them and I'm integrating them. And to really make this whole thing come full circle, I need to give it back in some way. And for me, being able to do this kind of work is me giving it back in some way. Kind of like repaying the favor, right? Like, hey, somebody was here for me and they did this stuff for me. Um, I have the information now. Let me relay it to you and see if we can kind of light, light other candles, right? Yep. So let me ask about the people that come in your office now. Now you have your own practice, right? That is, I, sounds like you have a lot of work. Like there's no shortage of work out no there. For you to do. <laughs> no. Which is the same reason why I'm trying to talk openly about this kind of stuff. Cause I think it's really important. Is there a common, so when I think about sort of mental health and what I call mind fitness, right? Like mental, the idea of our ability to mentally train ourselves the same way we know how to physically train ourselves for the most part, like that concept of, I've got these tools now in my tool bag, so to speak, where I can deal with things and I can work at it every day and I can meditate and blah, blah, blah. Is there a common, let's talk about veterans specifically. Is there a, like a big gaping hole in terms of what they know how to do mentally to train themselves, right? Like, what, is it sort of like, gosh, all, all these people, and I'm assuming it's mostly, is it mostly men that you treat? I'm probably... 70, 30. Is it like, man, they all just are missing, like this big thing, if they had been taught this 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they they would be in such, is there something like that? Yep. Emotional regulation, hands down, not even a close second. Like they just don't know what's happening internally, right? The, The inability to like regulate the system, dysregulate it, like they know what dysregulation feels like. But they're like, when you start talking about like, hey, man, like, how do you know when you're regulated? And then I realized, like, I can't even ask that question because they don't really even know what regulated means or feels like. I'm not sure I even know what it means. So why don't you back up and kind of break that down a little bit? When you say emotional regulation, what what is that? Yeah. So depending on whatever your emotional state is, whether that's like happy, angry, sad, you know, enraged, um, being able to be to emotionally regulate is to be able to bring that down to a baseline event, right? Or a, a baseline measurement of like, um, I'm able to be present in the room, you know, my blood pressure, like you're talking about biological stuff, like blood pressure's down, um, breathing is normal. We don't have short breaths, able to 
think logically through a problem. Like you can give them like a word problem. They could actually go through it and be like, all right, this is what this means. Right. Cause their fight or flight's no longer kind of kicked in. So you're trying to take everything from the, the amygdala that's in the fight or flight and you're trying to get it to that prefrontal cortex where all the emotional and reasoning is. Um, that's what you're looking for. Right. And a lot okay. of people don't know how to slow that system down and go from like the, um, sympathetic parasympathetic, right? Yep. Like they just don't know how to do that. And if you could do that and you know, simple stuff, like simple, not easy. Uh, breath work is the number one thing that like, we always have breath work. If we don't like that, you know, regulation isn't our biggest problem, right? If we don't have our breath. Um, but as long as you have your breath, you can regulate your internal system, right? You may yeah. not go down to baseline, but you can always regulate the system period. So does, does that start with a one sort of recognition of, Hey, you got to recognize what's going on here internally and have that that objective view, right? That sort of mindfulness awareness of the whole thing. And then to your point, okay, let's inject some tools here, breath work, maybe it's meditation, whatever it may be. And if that's true, is there, are you giving people like um, a specific breathing technique that you think is really effective or is it what, what's that look like? No, not, not for me. So like, so there, I, and I tell literally everybody I see this. So like, my, what I believe a good version of like therapy is to kind of move forward is, is two basic pillars, right? Insight, knowing what's going on and then perspective. How do we change what we know is going on? Right. So insight and perspective are like the big pillars. So when, when I start, when I start with somebody, um, you know, the first couple sessions are you just getting to know that person, right? What is that person like, right? Does that person like to hang out? Do they like to bowl? Do they like to shoot guns? What is that thing for them? Um, what I really start trying to do is like, Hey, can you remember a time when like things are just like calm and you're, and you're, you're focused in on what's going on and for some people that's shooting a gun. That's shooting archery. Some people that's being on top of a mountain or finishing a hard workout. And so I try to get them some kind of baseline of like, all right, cool. That's what regulation is. That's when you feel the most regulated and dialed in. Okay. What are some things that we can, I mean, you can go on, you know, on Google and you can find 10,000 different ways to like regulate your system. What I really try to do is to get to know that person, try to figure out like, Hey, what makes you tick? And then how do we tie in something that, that would work well with that? Right. So if you like to shoot, um, if you like to shoot guns, like great, cool. Like your breath work's got to be on, especially if you're shooting long rifles, like your breath work has to be on and steady or you're never going to hit it. Right. And so however I can tie who they are into one of those skill sets. That's what I'll do. I don't think I never do the, obviously the one size fits all, but it's a matter of like, how do we tie this into something else? Like some people are um, like the people watch. All right, cool. If you're dysregulated, um, we'll do some visual grounding, like pick a picture on the wall and give me the full details of that wall. Right. If you're more visually oriented, great. If you're tactile oriented, great. If you want to do breath work, great. We just got to figure out like, Hey, what is the thing that you normally are, um, prone to, to like getting into or, or you're comfortable around. And then how do we just refine it and tweak that to where you can actually use that as one of your tools to regulate? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Do <clears throat> so that emotional dysregulation or lack of ability to regulate, is that something that happens because of, let me sort of broad question here, but like, does, does that happen because of the military? You think are people drawn to the military that are already prone to that type of behavior in the first place. I also want to throw in one of the things that was a big eye opener for me, the more I dove into these types of issues is 
I think a lot of people out there assume that veterans that are struggling, they, it's always just like, they all have PTSD, right? That's what you always hear. It's like every veteran has PTSD and we're yeah. all just sad and like thinking about the things. And that's true for some people, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's a lot more individualized. It's like, yeah, that might be a piece of it. For me, I don't know that I ever had technically PTSD. Mine was more of sort of shame and guilt and regret and that kind of stuff. It wasn't like seeing death. That wasn't what was going through my head. It wasn't that kind of thing. For others, that is true. But then the the piece that was a huge eye-opener for me was, you know, a lot of people, a lot of veterans, it actually goes back to their, like you, goes back to their childhood. They had some super traumatic childhood. And that may have even been a reason why they went into the military or went into special operations or something like that. So almost like a, they were going to prove to their father or whoever that it's like, you know, I'm better than you. I'm going to go kick ass, right? Yeah. And then it's like, and then you go through all this traumatic stuff and whatever else it may be. But a huge contributing factor to your mental state as a veteran and why you, why you might be struggling actually goes all the way back to you were five years old or something like that, which, man, I, I never thought that until I started hearing more and more about it. Like how many guys are in that same situation? Yep. Yeah. I, you know, man, I would say, and obviously, you know, the people that I see and run into is a little bit skewed because of obviously what I do. Sure. But if I had to guess, I would be willing to bet that probably 70 to 80% of the people going into the military are coming in with some pretty difficult predisposed stuff, right? Lower income, Right. Uh, people trying to escape their, you know, shitty lives, shitty town. Um, they're trying to try to get it, trying to get away in some way, trying to prove something in another way. Like that's, you know, that's the Marine Corps dirty secret. Right. We're all a bunch of bunch of abused kids who are about to about to fuck something up. Right. Like that's kind of that's kind of the whole Marine Corps thing. Um, and I think we're probably the worst. The Marine Corps does attract that type of person. Right. Prove yourself. Right. Like that kind of like uh, thought process. I, here's what I'll say about that, man. And, and, and I think this is pretty accurate and hopefully people can conceptualize this. So like, you know, in our early years, like go down, my dog, uh, in our early years, like, you know, from some people would say from birth, but really like three, four, five years old until like you're 15 or 16, those are your formative years, right? That's where you learn how to navigate the world, what your sense of self is, your emotional ability to regulate, um, who you feel you are in the world, your competency, all that stuff, right? Your autonomy. And if you grow up in a really difficult childhood, whether you have like manipulative parents, abusive parents, whatever it is, we all have what I consider like a mental health bucket internally, like, right? Like if something happens, we don't know what to do with it. We're like, yikes, put that back there, right? And the more difficult the childhood, the smaller that bucket is by the time you turn 17, 18 years old. And really that, that, about that time frame, that's that's kind of the size of your bucket, right? So if you have all these experiences and you have a small little bucket, that thing's like half, three quarters way full. You have a, a really difficult couple combat tours in the military um, or for some of the women who also have combat tours, but then also the sexual assault stuff. Like it doesn't take long to fill that bucket, right? So you can have a couple really intense experiences and that bucket's full, right? The flip side is if you have, you know, whatever normal is, but if you have a healthy childhood, loving parents, they're there for you. You're given opportunities. They're they're supportive. They allow you to be yourself and autonomous. You know, the sense of self 
really helps you generate like this larger bucket, right? So we can go through more shit a longer period of time and we can put more stuff in that bucket. I say that because a lot of times by the time I see veterans, like they're coming in and like, they'll be like, Hey man, I'm watching an ASPCA commercial about a dog. And I'm just like weeping in tears. I'm watching a Hallmark movie and I'm weeping in tears. Like, I don't know what is this. Right. And that's kind of a little spiel. I give them like, Hey man, your, your bucket's full right now. Yep. Your body is keeping this full. And it's telling you like, Hey man, time's up. We're full right now. We got to do something to start emptying that bucket. Right. And that's when we start talking about the skills and stuff. But I think across the board, I think that's a pretty good analogy of like how big your bucket is, set, yep. how much you can actually go. Right. Yep. I've talked about it before. The, the analogy I use is a Jenga puzzle. It's, it's the same idea kind of in reverse. I, I haven't talked to you about this. I swear I've mentioned this. I've mentioned it, I think, a few times on the podcast. But for the for both of you that are listening right now, uh, I'll go over it again. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I came up with this on my own. I don't think I stole it from somewhere else, but I think of it as like a, a person, like a little kid who's never been through any trauma or anything like that is a is a Jenga puzzle, right? Those big, those Jenga towers where it's like you pull the blocks out, that game. And so it's, it's the uh, kind of the opposite idea, but these things happen to you. And instead of filling up a bucket, it's you're pulling the pieces out. It's like you had some trauma as a kid, you're pulling a piece out. You had some like you got you were in a car accident at some point, pulling a piece out. You got some heavy duty bacterial infection, piece out. Like spent years living doing night shift and totally jacked up your circadian rhythm, right? And so these pieces get pulled out. And to your point, and then when people are like to that point where it's like, hey, I I watch a kids movie with my ten year old son and I'm crying during this movie. It's like that Jenga puzzle is like about to collapse right and then at some point whatever it is this last piece gets pulled in and it collapses <clears throat> and it's like there you are now like you are and this is what happened to me like system completely collapsed and then what you try to do is <clears throat> you go maybe if you're lucky you say hey the other day this happened to me and man i feel so much worse after that so i'm going to go after whatever that thing is sometimes it's like an infection a virus a bacteria <clears throat> it might be a trauma and you might be able to deal with that. And then you're like, I still don't feel good. Why don't I feel good? And it's like, well, because all the other pieces are still lying on the floor. You now, once you get to that point where the whole system collapses, you've got to go address every single thing that contributed to that. And it's really hard. It's multifaceted. It's, an, it's an, like the opposite of an onion. It's like putting the onion back together, right? And that's, that's the trick is like, you know, you can you can put these pieces back up, but like every single one of those, because it's like it it pushed over all the pieces that were still in the system too. Like all of that shit is now on the ground too, and that's why it's so hard. I think, right? You know, and I still I'm still working on it on myself. You know, I probably have eighty percent of the pieces put back in, but I've still got another like twenty percent to go, something yeah. like that. Well, that I think that's a great analogy. I think that actually a big picture is probably a more apt way to put that than the mental health bucket because of that exact reason, right? Because even though you still have some of these little maybe coping mechanisms, things that are working, like the totality of it, like when it goes, it goes, right? Yep. And all that stuff still, like, I think that's a, that's a great analogy. And, and to kind of piggyback on your point there, like I'm still working on my stuff, man. Like I, you know, I, they're less and less, but when they do happen, they're like, yikes. Yep. Yikes. I, was yeah. well, I mean, like this is, this is the message that is so important, right? It's like, 
I'm not sitting here saying, I'm fine. I'm perfect now. Everything is great. And that's, that is how we, this is the, the dichotomy of physical and mental health. It's like physical health. We all get, it's like spectrum. It's not a yes, no thing. You don't have healthy and unhealthy people physically. We're all on the spectrum and like, you can move yourself to the right. You can get more fit. You can get more ill. It takes a lot of work. You have to keep doing it the rest of your life. It's never over. But mental health, it's like, well, you know, we go back to just, hey, do you have mental health problems? Are you good? Are everything okay? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, I don't want to say no, because then I'm diseased and I've, I've got an illness and a disorder. So, and then I'm a burden on people, or maybe I'm going to lose my job or something like that. So yeah, 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 I'm I'm good, I'm good, right? And and so it's like okay, cool. You're in the you're in the no problem bucket. You're in the no problem section. And then it's like maybe you have the courage to say no. And it's like okay, now you're in the diseased section of people. And it's just not true. It's like we're all dealing with stuff that's ongoing. It's like you're you're never <clears throat> just like physical fitness. You're never to the finish line. It's just a question of how disciplined are you and how much work are you going to put in. Um, to just keep yourself towards the fit end of the spectrum and hopefully getting fitter and fitter from a mental standpoint, right? And that's just a really important thing, I think. It's like there's there's no – there shouldn't be any gurus out there that are like, I am perfectly enlightened and I never get angry and I never get – right? Like I have no – nothing <laughs> mentally is ever wrong, ever. It's just bullshit. It's, it's just not true. It's, you know, I yeah, think it's really it, important, right? Like, like when you're sitting there with a therapist, I think it's really important to know that, hey, the therapist is dealing with their shit too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's it, really it, important. It just, it just shouldn't get in the way, right? Like, Agreed. Like, yes, of course. You're of right. Course. Yep. But like a doc, let's say you go to a doctor, right? The doctor is has to maintain their own physical fitness as well, their own physical health. And they might not have, they may have issues. They may have high blood pressure or something like that. It doesn't mean that their advice is, is erroneous or not valuable, <clears throat> right? You can have a therapist that has to, obviously has to work on themselves. It shouldn't become, become part of the session, certainly. But, but that, that humanizes all of it to, to me. That puts us on the same level, you know? And that's why, to me, I always say, it's important that we have therapists, people like you out there, obviously. <clears throat> and your story is really important too. That's what's so critical to me is to hear like that you went through all of that as well, because the the sufferer's stories I think are are so can be so inspiring. It's just like a transformative story physically. It's like the guy who was two hundred pounds overweight and then did the Diamond Dallas Page yoga program or whatever he did. Yep, yep. <clears throat> and and right. And then steps on this, and now he's, and was, have you ever seen that one of the dude, he's like their poster child to some extent. He was like on sort of walking crutches and could barely walk and was told he would be like that the rest of his life. And then he just started kind of cleaning up his diet, doing yoga. And then he was sprinting and lost all this. I mean, super inspirational. I don't care who you are. You watch that and you're like, oh, like that's getting me teared up. That's a hard thing to do though, mentally. Like it's hard to. We can see something like that, that visually. You can see the before and after and the transformative process. I don't even know what that looks like, how you track that mentally. But it is one of the reasons why I say I think journaling is so important because it's one of the only ways where you can track your mental state day in, day out. You can, if, if you're just, even if you're just writing stream of consciousness for 15 minutes a day, you can go back and go, 
okay, this is this is what I was thinking the last whatever whatever it is, right? Yeah, I, the journaling is great. I started doing that at the beginning of the year as well. I know you were you'd given one of those things out, and I started doing that, and I um I've enjoyed that as well. I, I will say that and this there's like this double-edged sword, right? I guess in kind of a way when you're talking about like, Hey, what does it look like for me to know my mental health or my mental fitness is like kind of on the upswing. And I think for me, um, one of the things that I like to do like in sessions is I'll bring spouses in, right? Like every six months or something like that, or every, eh, sometimes every three months or whatever, but I'll bring them in and be like, Hey, what do you see with your spouse? And yeah. they'll be like, oh, I see this, 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 and this. And I'll bring them back in six months later and like, oh, they, they're not doing this anymore. They're, you know, this thing's kind of happened, but this is kind of falling off the edge. So like, I think one of the good ways that we can monitor that is like the kind of like the friends we keep, right? Like what are our friends seeing? Like, do we have like these intentional conversations with people? And, and that's, so the, the double-edged sword of that is, is that people, when they tend to have, anxiety, depression, panic attack, you name it, PTSD, whatever, like they tend to socially isolate. Right. Yes. Um, and so for me, that's a big one of like, Hey, get out there, totally make a friend, do something. So like later on down the road when we're like, Hey, how are things like, I don't know. They're pretty much the same. And your friend's like, no man, like you're not doing that crazy shit anymore. Like this is happening and this is happening. Like, Oh, right. So we need that external input of like, Oh, yeah, they're, they're telling me and I trust them and I love them. They're telling me this thing. It kind of gives that soundboard a little bit as well. That's a great point. That's actually something I had, I had not thought of. I mean, I espouse getting together with people and not, not isolating. It's, it's healthy and important for so many reasons. But that point is one I hadn't ever thought of. And you're right. It's like you can get that external feedback of someone saying, no, dude, you're like doing a lot better than you were three months ago. And that's really validating. And and it's so hard to see for yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, yeah. it's the day in, the day out stuff. And, and some people rely on their, you know, their therapist to do that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, they can do that, right? But like, that's not your friends. Those aren't your like your homies, your hangouts. Like, you know, we're, we're kind of trained to look at that stuff and be like, oh, hey, this is happening different. But if you're talking about like quality of life, you know, and therapy is like a, a, a tenth of the sliver of the pie of like things we should be doing. Some of that is social interaction is having those friendships, right? Allowing those people to kind of love on you and kind of grind off those crunchy edges that you're like, ah, maybe I don't want to do that anymore because I really like this person. And every time I do that, it's not taken well. Cool. All right. It, it helped, you know, friends help us kind of like mold and meld that stuff. Um, absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the first responder community, because you oh, mentioned yeah. that I'm curious as to the the interplay or the uh, interconnectedness of that community of veterans, because what the reason I started what I do is because I wanted to reach primarily the veteran community, at least as my sort of target. Yep. But realizing that there's a lot of these tangential communities or ones that would in a Venn diagram would overlap to some extent. And I'm just curious what that community is like, how much of it is, I guess, the same from a broad brush perspective as the veteran community, how much is different? Do they deal with things in a slightly different way? I'm, I'm just really curious about that. Yeah. So I, dude, if you had a hundred veterans and a hundred law enforcement and they didn't have uniforms on, you probably wouldn't know the difference. Okay. And that goes for their culture. That goes for the way in which they talk to each other as far as like their own mental health. Like there is such an easy page flip from veterans to the, to the law enforcement. Um, Cause you know, 
most law enforcement, especially in small town, like, you know, Montana, right? Like a majority of your police are former military in some capacity. Mm. And that culture <coughs> is, I would say it is more ingrained in the current law enforcement culture to not talk about what's going on than it is even in the veteran community. I think it's actually got a little bit more of a negative stronghold than our veteran community. Um, because there are so many people like you and I and others that are kind of talking about these things on these platforms and kind of, you know, preaching a little bit of like, Hey, like we got to do something about this. Um, very few people, um, in the law enforcement community are doing that, right? Like they, they do their thing, they go through all their stuff and then they retire and then they just like fade away. Um, not a lot of people are coming out. Uh, about that stuff. That being said, um, I would say, you know, day for day, you know, month by month, year by year, mil uh, the police are going through considerably more trauma than veterans ever will. I mean, I mean, they're in their local community there. They have, I mean, think about like responding to like, uh, you know, things with children and car accidents and shootings in your hometown. Right. So when you're off work and you go by this place where you just had to do CPR on a baby yesterday and your wife's right. freaking out, um, same thing. Right. Yep. So like they're never removed from the stimulus. Like Iraq is really far. Afghanistan yep. is really far. Africa is really far. And in a sense, we get to at least not be in that stimulus trigger. Yeah, we may have trash on the road or, you know, all, all that, those little triggers. But the day to day, for the most part, like the police are in it. Yeah, man, that's such a great point. I had never focused on that, but you're totally right. The The trick, I think, in the military or what became tricky was I, I've talked about before warfare, at least from a let's call it last couple hundred years. I guess a civil war would be different, but let's World War II as an example. Those guys, they went to war, off to war, and they basically were either coming back or not. And they were gone until the war was over. It was a couple of years, whatever it may, it may be, for the most part. Vietnam, there were tours, but but still it was kind of like, I don't know how long those guys were over there for, months, maybe maybe years, whatever. It may mm -hmm. have come back. and But these last 20 years has been this like, like gone, back, gone, back, gone. Back. I mean, for decades, right? Which is such yeah. a different thing. It's like you, you would have to get yourself into warfare mindset, literally combat. And then well, here's the other thing too. Times like World War II, okay, you're over there for how long? And then it took a long time to get back. You were on like a boat going across the Atlantic nice. Ocean. Nowadays, it's like, hey, you're going to get on a plane. You're going to take some Ambien. You're going <laughs> to sleep for 24 hours, basically. You're there in combat and then you're going to, right? So you're literally going straight from the combat sort of you know, circadian rhythm dysregulated situation to, hey, I'm back with my family and it's it's all good. We're going to go to, the, you know, Ben Bath and Beyond, you know, maybe Home Depot. I don't know if all the time, whatever. Yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. And to try to like flip that switch back and forth is a really abnormal thing. I just don't think we are like sort of conditioned properly to be able to do that. But, however, to your point, at least those two situations are separated from one another. Geographically, you know, as much as like people might carry some of it back with them and might get into hypervigilance and hyperarousal and whatever else may be going on. But you're right. If you're a cop or a firefighter, there's no geographic separation from wherever the trauma and combat, so to speak, happens and where you live. And that's wow. That's yeah, man, that's that's 
harsh. I hadn't thought about it that way. Totally right. Yeah. And, and I started seeing like several cops who were uh, police officers uh, or several police officers who were veterans when I was at the combat vet center and then also at the VA. And when I started seeing them, I was just like, oh, man, you have, you know, even like even, you know, three, four combat tours. Right. You're talking about a couple of years overseas at combat tours. Like I'm as I was talking to them. I was noticing they're like, yeah, you know, this happened. I had a couple of these things happen and all right, cool. We can check out those things. Um, we'll look at them. And then there's like, yeah. And then I, you know, I had a hit and run the other day that I'd go through and I, there was a shooting and then there was a plane crash that happened and like, Oh, well, how was that? Oh, that was last week. Whoa. Right. And so for me and the culture is so similar and so close for me, like that was really one of my pressing things to get out of the VA. Cause like, uh, you know, I, I have a lo- I have a nonprofit in the in the community here that I run, and I try to like I want my community to be healthy, so we're all healthy, right? And I noticed like, hey, the people who are protecting our community, they're struggling right now. Nobody's helping them; they can't help themselves. And so, for me, I wanted to get out of the VA, like like broaden my horizons, spread my wings a little bit, and and, and put some work into this community because it's so close, man. It's such it's it's the same warriors mentality, um, but they're not getting help, man. And what's the, what's, I have a couple of questions. One is what's the predominant thing that they deal with? Is it, is it the same thing? Is it emotional dysregulation? Uh, it's, it's moral injury stuff, man. Okay. So, so dive into that. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. So like, so like with PTSD, yeah, let me, okay. So like PTSD, a lot of like, when we're talking about post-traumatic stress, you're dealing with like combat situations, a lot of, uh, of, of violence that either you're perpetrating or it's coming back and forth with moral injury. And I think this is across the board really with, uh, with law enforcement, uh, or, or first responders. It is, it, it's basically like witnessing or being around events that basically transgress your ethical or moral code. Right. And you have to just see it, seeing a baby get shot, seeing a baby get drowned, ha- watching a woman get beat, right? You have, we have these internal markers of like our values and our ethics, like, Hey, this should never happen. This should never happen. And then we're witnessing it daily, right? We call that, a, it's like a moral injury, like internally, okay. your morals are being basically kind of shredded. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say the majority of law enforcement, that's the issue. Like, when I first started coming on board with Flathead County Sheriff's Office, talking with the sheriff, under sheriff, and some other people, I mean, almost across the board, probably ninety-eight percent of the of the guys were like, "Hey, I felt justified." And, you know, we're talking about a shooting, right? That was <laughs> our original critical incident. Um, hey, they shot at us. We returned fire. We were protecting our lives, the lives of other. I'm good with that. That's my job. I'm okay with that. I didn't know I was going to have to walk into a room and there was a, you know, a dead baby on the floor that's been there for five hours. Right. Like that kind of stuff is the stuff that's, that's really been tweaking them. And so for me, I've been trying to work with like Flathead County, Polson, um, even Glacier National Park, who those guys go through crazy amounts of trauma, body recoveries, moral injury stuff, working with those communities to, to set up some programs of like, Hey, what is a critical incident in the past? It's always been defined as like a shooting. Most of your cops don't have a problem with the shooting because they're defending their life, right? Like, Hey, I'm justified. Um, and so I've been working with them to try to figure out like, all right, what is a critical incident as far as mental health goes? Right. And, and the point of that is to make sure that we can 
define critical incidents in a couple different ways that actually directly revolves around a moral injury that's that's happened, right? Seeing death of, of women, children, stuff like that. Um, and so you can actually address that problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, but how do you, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, what's the approach there? Okay. You're going to, you're going to, cause here's the reality, right? Like if you're in that job, you're going to see some of this stuff. So it's like, it's part of the job. So how, what's the, what is the process there? Like to kind of get through it. Yeah. So, so what I'm doing right now is I am, I am starting from the ground floor up and I am creating that process. So what that really looks like, what I'm doing right now is I am going in front of the officers, um, first responders, and I'm starting to give like education, open up the conversation of like, hey, PTSD isn't you in the corner skinning the cat, right? It's being distant from your spouse. It's yelling at your kids more than you would like to. Little things like that, right? It's you socially isolating from people. It's you being hypervigilant. Um, it's me trying to educate them so they can see these things coming on earlier so I don't get them by the time they're at the, you know, by the time the Jenga, Jenga pile has already fell, right? right? So some education and then also creating a an internal structure of like, hey, when this type of event happens, like your guys need to go see somebody. Um, whether you think it's a big deal or not, like if this kind of incident happens, this triggers a, a, this triggers like an internal event of like, oh, this is a thing that happened. This falls into the, into the moral injury category. We think it does. So we're going to automatically go, we're going to at least just check in with one of your guys. And then also some of that is me getting baselines for officers as they're coming into the, the uh, from the academy and into law enforcement. Like, hey, like I'm going to give you like PCA, I'm going to give you like uh, PTSD scales, depression scales, anxiety scales. I'm going to ask you about your social stuff. Um, just kind of like a broad intake of like who you are as a person right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check in every six months, you know, and see how you're doing. Take some of these again. Where are you at on this stuff, right? And I think you need to develop close personal relationships. So when you see them, um, they're not pencil whipping that shit. Um, and that, that's the kind of the trick, right? Yep, and so yep. that is like me and some of the people that I'll be hiring with me to have very close personal relationships. You can have some conversations or they can call and be like, hey, this is a thing that happened, man. It's, it's, it was two weeks ago. It still bothered me. Like, can I come chat with you for a minute? Yep. Come on down, man. We'll take care of it. Yeah. Right? creating those personal relationships um, and some insight from them of like, Hey, this is a thing that's happening. I don't like to talk to people anymore. Right. Um, So they know what the beginning stages of some of these issues are. So then you can, it it prompts them of like, this isn't the way I used to be six months ago. Maybe I should just, you know, have a conversation. Yeah. To me, so much of that comes down to like, this is where training helps prior training, realizing Hey, in your role, in your, I, we hope that you never see these types of things, but the reality is you probably are. You're going to see these things. That's part of the job. So it's preparation for that. And then it's, hey, when this happens, you're going to have the memory of that. You're going to remember that, but be very, very careful of the story you start telling yourself about that. And that's what you really need to clue into. And that was something that I had come to terms with of like my trauma that I dealt with was it was... It wasn't really the trauma. It was the story I told around it. That was the problem, right? And that's understanding that. It's like, you need to, re- if you start telling yourself a story, you better, rec- you need to recognize that. And if it's a destructive story, you need to stop that in its tracks. 
understand why you're doing that, and then probably change the story. That's that's really important. Realizing you just you don't have to tell that destructive story, you know. And I, and I speak from experience here. I told a destructive story to myself for 12 years about my about my own kind of traumatic experience, you know. And once I stopped doing that, the trauma of it basically went away. It's like I can still remember it. Yeah, it just doesn't bother me anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that, and that's the trick, right? It, it is always the story we tell ourselves, yeah, right? Totally. And if we don't, if we don't know how to process that, and we can't make sense of it, then we usually tell the worst possible story, right? We have this internal sense of like, oh, if something bad happened, it must have been my fault, or I had something to do with it, and so we we just basically put our emotional blanket around everything like oh all of that was my fault like you had a role to play dude but like you didn't have that much to do with it and just seeing the clarity of of what actually happened right like the truth of the situation versus what i'm telling myself yep if you're talking about trauma most of the time that doesn't really align yep one other thing i want to get your take on with cops and that is with the military i mean we're, we're in a pretty good state societally now in the sense that regardless of where you might fall in the political spectrum, there's a pretty unified support of the troops, so to speak. People might not agree with the actual wars fought or conflicts or any of that, but like by and large, there's very few people out there going, screw the troops, right? It's very much, it's supportive. We have a supportive culture of veterans, of people in the military by and large. Cops on the other hand right now, are getting a ton of negative energy. And that's not to say that there aren't bad apples out there, certainly, and, and people that obviously should be prosecuted or whatever it may be, right? However, that's being extrapolated to like all cops deserve this cr- critique. So, I mean, like to me, it's just another, man, that's just got to be so difficult if you're a police officer now, right? It's like, hey, I'm just doing my job here. I'm already to, to the thing, the point we were just talking about. I deal with this stuff and it's in my backyard. I can't get away from it. And now I've got this message being directed at me that I'm just, because I'm a cop, I'm, I'm evil and I'm bad and all of that. And I just think that that's, I mean, that has to add to all of this, right? Yep. So how does that, do you get a lot of that? Do you get people coming in there just like, man, like, you know, it's hard to hear all the negative energy that's being directed at me and my coworkers. And yeah. So, so luckily we're in Northwest Montana, right? We're still pretty, pretty mm-hmm. supportive by and large of law enforcement. Yes. So we, and I would say we may not actually be the norm, right? We're really lucky in this area where I, you know, it's funny too. And I, I tell the guys sometimes like, hey, don't do that. Uh, but they do it. So it's like they watch the news, right? And and, <laughs> and they're like, oh, this cop over here in Missouri and this cop over here in New York. I'm like, yeah, it sucks. It's not right. But like that has nothing to do with you right here. Like you're in a good department. You have people. Um, but they, a lot of people will get themselves worked up, right? Because it is a brotherhood. And I understand that. But that that piece needs to be taken care of on its own, right? Um, so, like, I think people can get themselves worked up in our area, and, and with some legitimacy, right? Like, I, I get it; we don't want that stuff to spill over. Um, but I'd, you know, really take care of your house first before we start figuring out like what's going on with the neighborhood. Um, and, and we're pretty fortunate here for the most part. Um, it's it's getting a little bit more different over the last couple of years with all the influx of of people from um, different states that have more liberal views, I think, than conservative, because this has obviously traditionally been a very conservative um, state. Um, so that's 
that's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. I think you bring up a good point. I stopped watching the news a couple of years ago. I think that where I just I'm like I'm, this is not helpful, right? No. And I think that's something we all succumb to, which is we take messaging that's out there societally, nationally, and we bring it home. It's like, yeah. and, and we even say like, even that kind of stuff, it's bring up a good point. It's like, man, all this bad, this negative talk dialogue about police officers. And it's like, well, if you turn off all the national news, would you really be getting any of that messaging? Is it like, are people in your own community doing that? And if not, why bother listening to the national narrative on this stuff, right? I mean, and this applies to everything, political, you know, you name it. Or even, you know, I was thinking about with the fact that you treat or talk with primarily men too. I mean, if you kind of go on the national scale, you can extrapolate a lot of sort of negative talk about men these days too, right? Toxic masculinity, the the idea that just because you're a man, you're toxic or you're evil almost, right? And, and I'm guilty of that sometimes too, of like internalizing that, or I'll read something that sort of leans that way. But I have to kind of check myself a little bit and be like, yeah, but does anybody around me act that way? Right. Does my family act that way? No. Do my coworkers? No. Like nobody in my community acts that way. So like, why am I getting wrapped up in that narrative? I'm not saying it's not out there, Yep. but it's like, why make it part of my life when it isn't? <laughs> right. And there's so much of that too. Like so much messaging that we can go, we can get it instantaneously through the internet, through social media, and we we internalize it and make it personal. We make it about us. And it's like none of it is directed at you. And you wouldn't even know about it if you just interacted with the people that were actually part of your life, right? Yeah, it's it's funny too. I have I did I stop watching the news. I no. it's like one of the best things you can do for your mental health. I oh. just, like, just stop. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like four or five years ago, and, and I'll have vets come. And this is usually the older vets still, like Vietnam era era. You know, like mid fifties to mid seventy fives. They'll come and be like, "Hey, did you see what's going on in the news?" And I always tell them, "But dude, I don't watch the news. I have no idea what's going on." And they're usually like, "Oh, like I have yeah. no context for it, man. Sorry." One, because I don't want to talk about it, right? Because there's no no good will come of that other than me basically reframing it and, be, and being like, hey, how is that actually affecting you, yep. right? And they're like, oh, it's not. I'm like, all right, cool, let's stop doing it. But basically, I'll just be like, hey, man, I don't watch the news. Like, I don't have any context for what's going on. I don't know if the Kardashians are on TV. I couldn't tell you. Sorry, man. Yep. yep my train sailed. So I, I call it anger porn. It's like, it's, right? It's like, there's, and I mean, I think that is the appropriate term for it. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Sit down, ready to get angry. Here we go. Boom, yep. turn on the news, right? And it's <laughs> like you're addicted to being angry kind of to some extent. It's like that you're, you're getting off on, on just whipping yourself into a frenzy every day. And you got to sit there and go, why am I doing this? Like, what, how has this served me? And I, it gets back to a point I made earlier. It's like, well, maybe it's because you are angry, but it's not about that. It's something else. And that's really what you should probably dig into, right? Yeah. Yep. It's a yep. surrogate for... It's yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 it kind of, you know, our internal. If if we're engaging in something externally that that reflects our internal state, like that stuff vibes, right? Yeah. Like you said, if I'm feeling angry and I'm watching angry shit, like cool, like I'm in my path, like I'm doing the thing that that makes me happy, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. And it makes me angry. Well, and it can be. It's it's comfortable. You can get comfortable like that, where 
you know, you talk about the emotional dysregulation. I mean, man, when I got out of the military, I definitely had that with, I mean, I can remember situations where I flew off the handle. I don't even remember what it was about, but I can remember standing in my kitchen, arguing with my wife about something trivial, I'm sure. And I took off my like $200 pair of sunglasses and I smashed them on the floor. And that was, I mean, you want to talk about emotional lack of ability to regulate. There it is right there. Right. For, <laughs> yeah. for and, and this is something, again, I have no idea now what the hell it was about. I guarantee it wasn't all that important. Right. But there's a comfort in that to some extent, I think. And it's like, great. I'm just going to keep being angry because that's what I'm used to. And I'm comfort comfortable there. And it can be uncomfortable to uh, uh, analyze ourselves and look at what's really causing that. Right. Yeah. And I think back on those, man, it's just, it's embarrassing, but it's funny too. I guarantee she doesn't even remember. Like nobody remembers it, but me. And again, like, so that's destructive too, for me to, 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 to wallow. Yeah. No, no, nobody remembers it, but you, nobody cares. Like, so you might want to not carry too. Uh, all right. Well, I got to wrap this up in a couple minutes. Um, anything else we, that we didn't touch on that's, I think that's relevant to what you do. That's, uh, that might be really important to, the veteran community, first responder community, anybody else who might be listening out there? No, not specifically, man. But here, here's what I'll say, though. Like, I think when did I meet you? 2017? Yeah, it had uh, been 18. We moved 18? here in 18, yeah. Okay, okay. So shortly after I moved here. So it, it's been interesting to watch your journey, man. You know, like, especially when I first met you, like, you were still going through a lot of your stuff. And then obviously I've been following your your blog and then your podcast and then some of the the book reads and stuff. One of the things that I would say if people are looking to self-improve in some way is one of the beautiful things that I think that you've been doing is like this consistently pushing for discovery, right? I don't think there's like any one thing in general. Like I, I would never be like, oh, you need to do this or you go to go therapy or you got to do breath work or, or whatever, right? Even though all those things are helpful. Like one of the things that has been really impressive is for me to like, you know, from kind of like this outsider's perspective is see you like go through these things, challenge yourself in like in, in a, in a, in a, in a way it's like you're modeling for other people, like what that can look like. And so for me, man, I just wanted to say like kudos for that, because I know that you've basically just done, been doing all your own like deep dive stuff and be like, Hey, well, what is this about? Take the rabbit hole. Like so many of the things that you've talked about in, in this podcast right here and in some of your other ones, which, which have been really great. is like, you've done these journeys of self-discovery and you've, you know, some of them work really well. And some of them like that ah, doesn't work great. A lot of those things that you've been doing, like we do in a therapeutic environment, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is fine, but I think there's probably a greater value in in use in in us self discovering those things and taking ourselves down that road than just relying on just like the therapeutic piece, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I talk about is like a, a therapist is a personal trainer for your mind. It's like they should be teaching you how to do these things on your own. But eventually, I mean, it's great. If you love your <laughs> therapist and you just want to talk to them every week, that's great. <laughs> but really, sh they should be working themselves out of the job. 100%. Right? It's like, and, and that's not, I don't think that that should be controversial to say the same way a physical trainer should work themselves out of the job. It's like, hey, I've taught this person what I know about how to work out. Now, maybe they still lack the discipline to do it every day. And that's a little bit of a crutch for them. 
okay, that's fine. But they should know everything they really need to know at some point. And it's just a matter of, you know, applying it to what they do. And the, and the self-discovery piece, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point is like, so you, you're empowered, you have so much power to kind of do this on your own. And to your point, it is a bespoke thing. Like the concept is the same for everybody, but what works for me is not good, not the, exactly the same as what's going to work for you or somebody else. And it's like, you got to, no one can sit there and say, okay, here's the exact formula of how to become mentally fit. Nope. There, there just doesn't exist. It's like, you got to find your own path and try things. And something that might have been a, like the heart opening thing you did, right? Mm-hmm. That, that may be soup. That was super powerful for you. It might not work at all for somebody else. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that it wasn't effective for you. And it doesn't mean, and it, and it can be, I think those discoveries can be good as well because you go, okay, that didn't work. Like, great. Let's cross that off the list. You know, let's give it our all. That's really important. It's very important that it's like, don't half-ass it. Like I'm big on, okay, do your quote unquote research and try something and really try it. Give it, give it your best shot. And that way you can properly evaluate it. You can say, this is really effective. I like this. I'm going to incorporate this into my daily, weekly practice or no, nah, it didn't really work for me or eh, I kind of liked it, whatever it may be. Um, man, I found that time and time again with things. I know, I know people that have done things that are like, man, this was so profound and impactful and I'll do, I'll try it. And I go, hmm. like, <laughs> yeah, and vice versa, you know, and that's just like, that's part of the deal. We're all different, you know? Yeah. All right, cool, man. Well, like I said, I got to bounce, but there are some other things that I, we didn't get to that I want to talk to you about. So we can, we can reserve that for part two, the return at some point. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Man. Cool. Where can, um, if somebody wants to connect with you or find out more about you, where can they do that? So let's see, you can reach out on my email. I have a website, but it's through my, um, it's through my electronic healthcare record. Um, if you just Google Brandon Spangler, uh, my company is Warriors Mindset LLC. That's you, if you just Google Warriors Mindset LLC with Brandon Spangler, it'll it'll come up with awesome. all my information. But I'm here locally in Kalispell. Awesome. And I should say, <clears throat> you're the only person with a Ghostbusters last name that I've ever met in my entire life. I don't Damn. know. I don't know a Venkman. I don't know a Zettermore, and I don't know a Stance, but I know a Spangler, and that's really yeah. exciting. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> all right, brother. We'll end there. Good talking. You really appreciate it. All right, brother.